Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for having me at Oxford. It's a privilege to be here. This is where I did my second degree, so it's uh, always a joy to be back. I uh, actually was at St Cross, just up on... i better stand near the recording equipment. I was up on St Cross, so uh, it's a delight to be in this one of the older colleges. First of all, I'm sorry about my appearance. Usually on these occasions I would wear a suit, but I needed to come out from London on my motorcycle. Unfortunately, as you can probably see... For the first time, my waterproof sleeves, but there we are. So, <laughs> delighted to be here. What I'd like to do is mostly talk about the financial system, but also to explain, by way of very briefly giving you the relevant parts of my life story, why it is that an aerospace and software engineer spends so much time talking about financial matters and banking. I was born into a very ordinary home down in Cornwall. Dad was a carpenter, Mum and Clark, uh, went off into the Royal Air Force on a series of scholarships a sixth form scholarship, a flying scholarship, and then a university cadetship. I always wanted to be around fast jets, just exciting, dynamic, good quality engineering, serving the country through the armed forces, all that stuff, really. And it was all very sim simple back then, because the enemy was the USSR, and it was, we the good guys, the capitalists, versus the bad guys. And it all seemed very straightforward, particularly for me, I just thought, vote conservative and everything will be okay. Politicians will, <laughs> politicians will do their thing, and I'll go off and be an engineer. Now, the Cold War ended just as I joined the Royal Air Force, but still, it was good fun. I was signed up and on, on my way. Um, but as I went through, I had two fantastic tours of duty, and then they put me on to engines. And I wasn't really very interested in aero engines for the rest of my career. I mean, they're fantastic and brilliant, very interesting. But if you're particularly interested in weapons and avionics, as I was, then um, maybe not so much. So... I was looking forward to a career of mostly sitting in a huge open plan office working with a technology which frankly slightly bored me. So the dot-com boom was happening, it was 1999, and I decided I, I would leave. Post-Cold War, big commercial opportunities, off I went. I applied to come to Oxford to do an MSc in computer science, which I successfully did. But you'll have spotted, that was 99. And while I was here doing my Masters in Computer Science to get into the dot-com boom, the bus happened. <laughs> so I was looking around for a good explanation of why all the entrepreneurs and investors had made the same mistake all at once. Why had everybody been so wrong? And a friend here, very, just one of those eclectic readers who spots a little bit of everything, he said, here's the monetary theory of the trade cycle for which Hayek got his Nobel Prize. So I read into it and I thought, well, that makes sense. If you deliberately suppress interest rates, what you do is you discoordinate the economy through time. You get a great big bloom of credit. That causes uh, malinvestment. People make the wrong investment decisions because credit's too cheap. So you get a boom and inevitably, because it's built, it's a castle in the air, inevitably you then get a bust, in a nutshell. But I thought, that makes sense. But why is it then that politicians and economists don't do something about the monetary order to avoid these boom-bust cycles. And anyway, I'm not an engineer, so it can't really make any sense. So off I went then into uh, software anyway, and had a good career doing all sorts of things. But notably, I worked with banks and their regulators in the UK and overseas. And I realised that even people, like one guy I met from the FDIC, the Federal, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, did not know, he did not know that banks lend money into existence when they create credit. Now, it's okay not to know that if it's not your job. But I started to realise that there were hordes, thousands and thousands of people working in the banking system and the regulatory system who just didn't know these basic things about the way 
banks work, and um, of course I quickly realised that therefore politicians certainly didn't know either, for the most part. <laughs> so my confidence then was growing. I was reading into the Austrian school, I was expecting a housing bus, this, that and the other. So I found myself at Lehman Brothers. <laughs> it wasn't my fault, <laughs> but I was there at Lehman Brothers in the sort of three years up to the end. And what we saw there was record quarters. I was only a contractor, I was the chief architect of uh, two global programmes. We were, we were looking at record quarters, quarter after quarter after quarter, and then pop. Now, I designed my programs with an agile, has anybody done any software engineering, agile engineering, so that you can take clearly defined exit points with value, rather than ending up building huge software projects which then go wrong and waste millions. And what they did was they took one of those clearly defined exit points, froze the project, my contract, instead of being renewed, came to an end. They laid off loads of software engineers, I went out in about the March, I think it was, and by May, Lehman had gone. So at this point, having really read into the Austrian School of Economics, that's when I co-founded the Cobden Centre with Toby Baxendale to try and get these ideas out there. In parallel, at the same time, I was so angry about the European Union Constitution, the Lisbon Treaty, that I decided, decided to stand for election. It wasn't actually over money and banking that I sought election. I believe if you're going to have a state, you must be able to get rid of it peacefully at the ballot box. It's totally unacceptable for, for me, for political integration, to proceed without a democratic mandate. And yet that is what is happening. So that's what sent me through the roof. I want a referendum. Very, very happy to have international, social and economic integration, but you don't need the state for it. And if you're going to have a state, you must have a mandate. So that's what set me off. And I'm very glad that it is now conservative policy to have a renegotiation followed by a referendum. So that's kind of my life story and how it is that a chartered aerospace engineer and software engineer talks about money and banking. Because I find I've read myself into a school of thought which not only saw what's happening to us today coming, but also has been far better at predicting the general pattern of events. If you were to go back to Hansard, it, probably, it was probably in the summer of 2011. I'd have to check, I think it was. But I intervened on Joe Johnson. So Joe Johnson, Boris's brother, is an XFT journalist, and he's pretty good. He's clever. He's well-read into the current contemporary mainstream. And in his speech, he was explaining to a full chamber how it all looked better now. We were clearly, everything was recovering. And I intervened on him to say, well, that's great, but we're still listening to the same economists who didn't see this coming and then didn't even forecast the general pattern of events. Well, of course, that got a laugh in the chamber, which is great. They weren't laughing at me, they were laughing at the absurdity of the situation. At least I think they were. <laughs> but the point is this. The mainstream of economists didn't, on the whole, see this coming, and then they haven't forecast the general pattern of events. If you want to see that, you've only got to get the Office for Budget Responsibilities charts and see how they themselves have put in the latest documents how wrong they have been. We're now in one of the longest recessions uh, that we've known. Um, it's, the recovery is long, in terms of GDP is uh, taking longer than the Great Depression. So there's a set of slides which are easily available online. I'll send you a link to them. I didn't have today's min-man. I didn't have time to bring them. But I'll just run you through them quickly. If you look then at the growth of government and how it's paid for, what you find is this. The first thing is if you plot government from about 1870... To 2010, the state spent 10 to 15% of GDP. 
Around 1914, there was a spike to about 40% of GDP being spent by the state for the, second, for the First World War. Then it starts on its way upwards, and you get a spike to about 70% for the Second World War, and then the state's growing. And then from about 1969, the state's been up and down, but it's broadly done that. Uh, that's stayed flat at about 40 to 50% for the benefit of the recording. But what you see when you look at the growth of the state is really three phases. A classical liberal order, when people believed in a free society on the whole, that was the contemporary, make, that was the centre ground. And then a great social democratic age, most of my lifetime, I was born in 71, with two big spikes for the world wars, and in fact I should have drawn that a bit higher. But what you see there is a great transformation in course of ideas. Um, I love reading the literature from this period. Things like uh, James Byrne and the managerial revolution. He was an American Trotskyite who saw, he, 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 he sort of turned away from the Soviet experiment when he could see it was too radical. But he wrote this great book called The Managerial Revolution, which said that for him, the New Deal in the United States, British managerialism, Soviet socialism, Nazism, Italian fascism, these were all for him symptomatic of an intellectual trend that was sweeping the world, and that was a belief in managed societies. Now, if he's anything like right, bear in mind that it was about the same time Hayek was writing The Road to Serfdom, Karl Popper was writing The Open Society and Its Enemies, on and on. Then what's happened is we've had this managerial revolution in this period, followed by a great age of social democracy. But that's the ideology. How's it been paid for? I'm not going to try and draw all the charts, but there are only three ways you can pay for government. There's always been the same three ways. You can tax people, you can borrow against a pledge to tax them more tomorrow, or you can debase the currency. So when you look at taxation on this uh, chart, the taxation, there was a, taxation was low, and then there was a sort of, well, and then taxation since 1969 um, or so, has pretty much flatlined at about 40 to 42% of GDP. That is, the evidence is, of the last 40 odd years, my whole lifetime, the evidence is that you can only take about 40% of GDP in tax. And that is the Treasury's rule of thumb. The problem is, I've drawn those lines wrong, is that actually that 40% is about in there somewhere. Government usually spends more than it takes in taxes. And if you plot the chart of deficits since about 69, if I just do it since 69, there was a sort of little bit of surplus. And that's pretty much what's happened to the borrowing requirements since 69. There was considerable borrowing requirement for a while. Margaret Thatcher got into a surplus. We then had this... Uh, uh, it was the, the, after Lawson had been Chancellor, wasn't it? There was a bust. Then we had a short period of surplus again, and now we've got this huge deficit, the worst in peacetime. So that's the borrowing. If you look at the um, Bank for International Settlements uh, working paper, 300, I think it was, The Future of Public Debt, they do a number of charts which show uh, the Western world and where it's going on debt. And they all do this. One way or another, there's various projections for different age-related benefits. But for the UK, the Bank for International Settlements forecasts that by 2040, the UK would be spending 25% of GDP in debt interest payments. 
So if you're spending a quarter of GDP on debt interest payments, and you can only take about 15% in tax, it's pretty obvious you've only got 15% left to spend on services. Now, so this really is the low point in my talk. It gets worse, actually, later. <laughs> but what that tells me is that in all of our lifetimes here in this room, the way the world works is definitely going to change profoundly, if they're right. Because it's inconceivable that with an ageing population and an ideological belief in social democracy and a load of debt projections which go up to hundreds of percent of GDP, it's just inconceivable that all of this will go on. At some point in our lifetimes, our current social system will end and we'll have to find a different way to look after one another. Now, there is a third way of... Um, paying for government, and that is debauching currency. So, if you were to plot a price index back to 1750, which was done by the House of Commons Library um, and the Office for National Statistics, it's difficult because you have to get the prices right, but in their paper it explains how they did it. There's a couple of markers, about 1900 and then about 1971. On a linear scale, it's pretty much a flat line. You get a bit of inflation, bit more inflation, oh, collapse. So if you go to the Bank of England's own inflation calculator, you can see that since 1971, you know, I was born as it happens, money's lost well over 90, I think it's 94% of its value. If you go back to the end of the classical gold standard, it's something crazy like 98%. So the point is that money has lost almost all its value in my lifetime. And again, everybody in this room, everybody in this room is used to living in that age a chronically inflationary age, not in that age which, where prices were mostly stable. If you put this on, people often ask for it on a log scale, if you put it on a log scale and draw out the details, you find a bit of inflation around the Napoleonic Wars, and then some price instability, but a secular trend downwards, and then something like that. If you were to plot the broad measure of the money supply M4 from 1997 to 2010, you would find it tripled. Under New Labour, the British money supply went from £700 billion to £2.2 trillion in 13 years. Now this is about something called the Cantillon effect. You cannot triple the money supply in the economy without causing structural distortions. If I start with a banking system and government and central bank working together, if together we're creating, doing things to create money, say lending into housing because that's what Basel incentivises us to do, here, we're standing next to this great fountain of new money, yeah? And we're all getting soaking wet with new money. <laughs> now, that explains why it is that when I was working at Lehman Brothers, I'd turn up on the same motorbike, briefly, and you'd go into the car park, and there's several decks of cars, Ferraris, Aston Martin, Lamborghini, you know, whatever, a, a rubbish car, and there was a nice new M3. Now, I've got absolutely no objection, as you'd expect, to people being rich. But if they're rich because they're standing next to a fountain of new money, which is systematically distorting the economy into unsustainable shapes, and inherently making the person at the back of the room furthest away from the source of new money, inherently redistributing resources away from them, robbing the economy of capital, loads of other awful uh, consequences, if that's what's happening, and it's not just. And this is the problem. If I was to tie what I've just said together, I believe what is happening in the world right now is a profound crisis of political economy. 
because throughout my lifetime, the dominant political ideology has basically been social democracy. Even during the Thatcher years, people were dependent upon the state, first and foremost, for health, education and welfare. Together, two-thirds of government spending right now, this year, that's about two-thirds. If you add debt interest, it's 74% of government spending. So what is happening is that that consensus that the state should provide welfare, health and education <coughs> led to a state spending consistently more than it could take in taxation throughout that period, and ultimately funding itself by allowing the currency to be debased. So what does that mean? If the currency has been so debased now as to create massive structural misallocations in the economy, an economy overwhelmingly oriented towards banking, towards the southeast, towards the city, towards housing, overwhelmingly oriented away from places further away in the country, notably geographically, where places where the public sector is dominant. Northern Ireland is, what, 70% of GDP? You go up to Newcastle, it's 60-odd. Pick up Google Soviet Britain, a report done for the Times in 2005 six, I think it was. If you look at um, the Times coverage of that, you'll find that the report discovered that in the Soviet satellite countries, at the end of the Cold War, the state was about 60% of GDP. So the crazy thing is, we've ended up with places far away from this new money fountain, are up at Soviet levels of state spending. And we call all this capitalism. Now, I said in the Commons, if this is capitalism, I'm not a capitalist. Because some of that Rand, Ayn Rand stuff, if you've read the Ayn Rand, I don't particularly like her, but she did write some good and useful stuff. But we need to have an economy that's just and moral because it's based on the, on the exchange of value for value. And one of the problems we've got is when you're, what you're doing is exchanging value for something which loses its, loses its value at at least 2% a year, and probably faster if you actually included the true cost of housing, what you've got is an immoral economy. And it's immoral because the means of exchange is broken. In fact, Rand said, when destroyers appear among men, they begin by destroying money. For money is men's protection on the basis of a moral existence. If you look at Keynes in the economic consequences of the peace, Keynes ascribed a comment to Lenin, which nobody's ever traced, but nevertheless Keynes at least thought it, that the best way to overturn the existing basis of society, which was capitalism, was to debauch the currency. So here then, I mean, they've, they've, they've left their encampments now, but here we are in a time when we've had people like the, um, the Occupy movement camping out to say this is unjust, the 1% are getting away with something unjust. And do you know what the problem is? They're right. As a Conservative, I'm happy to say they've got a really good point, those Occupy people. don't like the way they've protested, but they've got a point. If you triple the money supply in 13 years, if you, if you debauch the currency systematically for 40 you end up creating an unjust social system. So I talked for longer slightly than I meant. But this then is where we are. We're towards the end, I believe, of a social system which is in nobody's best interests. It's a cruel fairy tale to tell people we can keep on living beyond our means. If I were to sum it up into just two ideas, balanced budgets and sound money. And in the end, they're actually quite conservative ideas. But today, the consequences of adopting them are fairly libertarian. Because once you've got balanced budgets and sound money, the state would have to live within its means. So, huge amount of conversation, huge amount of ideas, huge amount of thoughts, rather. Um, over to you. Let's have, a, let's have an exchange of ideas. Am I mad? Does it sound about right? What do you think? <laughs>
um, one of my colleagues did bring one forward, Sajid Javid, and then he was going to bring one forward as a 10-minute rule bill and then was promoted to economic secretary, so I'll have to ask. Others, like uh, Ben Gummer, have brought forward similar measures. The, one or the other of them brought forward um, a bill to cap spending and the other one to, uh, to require a balanced budget. The problem we've got is that people look at the reality of balancing the budget and recoil in horror. At the moment, they're trying to balance the budget by growing, fine, but you can see in the last budget they want to grow by rekindling the housing market and credit expansion. Yeah, you don't need me to explain further. Um, but the truth is that two-thirds of public spending is health, welfare and education. And I'm well aware that you're going to be recording what I'm saying. I, but what, I'm, what I'm aware of is we're not going to balance the budget until we reduce spending on health, welfare and education, because that's two-thirds of the budget. Actually, in the road to serfdom, there's a section in one of the chapters dedicated to just this problem. But how do you cut welfare, health and education spending and still get re-elected? Yeah, that is the uh, getting on with a trillion pound question. No, no, no. I'm always, I'd always much rather be recorded saying what I believe to be true. But how do you get your colleagues on both sides of the aisle to even understand it? I mean, there's a, there was a, an evidence session. They, you know, they, have a, they seem to have a one-track mind. So there was an evidence session in spring in February or March 2007 before everything kicked off. And it happened to be an evidence session about how the Monetary Policy Committee had worked, whether it had been a success, it was a five-year review. Yeah. So it wasn't looking at money supply, it was looking at the way it worked. Yeah. But Eddie George quite clearly explained to them that in 2001-2002 they took decisions to reduce interest rates and um, cause consumer inflation. Yeah, it's amazing, and isn't it? Just, and, and it hasn't been picked up by the, the Independent was the only newspaper that reported it. It's oh, gone right. even from their archives now. Um, he actually said something like, um, sort that out. Yeah. We were saying, sort that our out. Our message to our successor is to sort that out. Yeah, brilliant, thanks very much. Yeah. yeah, so I had an economist come and stay with me. I've made it my business to know the good, really good monetary economists. And, and last week, George Selgin was in the UK, in fact, he's still in the UK till the middle of next week. He's at a monetary conference here this weekend. But George and I were talking about it, and George particularly has made it his business to demonstrate that since the introduction of the Federal Reserve in the United States, which mercifully has been in less, uh, existence for a shorter time than our own bank, that they have not produced, they have not met any of their objectives. They've produced price instability. One of his particular examples, which I'm, I'm looking forward to reading his paper, he pointed out that before the Federal Reserve, price stability was such that private firms could issue 100-year issue bonds to finance investment, and subsequent to the Federal Reserve, price instability has been so great that that whole market's been killed. So, what, what has gone wrong that the mainstream of economists are stuck in this one track where they don't see it? If you're familiar with the idea of a paradigm shift proper, as in Thomas Kuhn's idea, I think what has happened is we've ended up with a mainstream of economics built up with lots of many, many brilliant people in it, but they're working on the basis of a couple of errors. And one is um, problems of epistemology, the problems of knowledge. That Hayek made this the subject of his Nobel lecture. Because they can't measure certain things, like the subjective preferences that are going on inside people's heads, because they can't measure them, they tend to ignore them. And they, they, they measure what they can measure and come up with models based on those things. But there's a whole set of problems around epistemology 
and have a look at Hayek's Nobel lecture for more on that. The other issue is, in one word, time. To make ma the mathematics work, it's important to assume away time. So, for example, to make a car, you've got to mine iron ore out of the ground, refine it to steel, get the steel to the right uh, um, billets or whatever, press it to panels, assemble the panels, paint it, you get the idea. And all this great, these great different trees of production all come together to produce a car on the forecourt ready to sell. But how long is it between a car being retailed today and when the iron ore in it was taken out of the ground? Well, I'd suggest years. But what happens is to make the maths work, you end up as mainstream economists assume away all the time and say that because iron ore is being mined today, it's a fair assumption to just do the maths based on the coarse aggregates. And so they end up neglecting the effect of production time. If I were to draw you another chart, this is a long answer to this question, but it goes to the heart of it. Why are mainstream economists so often right? And why is it that if you look at the Compton Centre website, you can find a pair of blog posts, at least one pair of blog posts, which show that even a software engineer who's read some Hayek did better broad pattern predictions than Jim O'Neill at Goldman Sachs. But there's, there's, if you categorise economists, they'd like this. If you say, um, should economic decision-making be decentralised or should it be centralised to produce economic order? And if you say, does time matter when you do your short-run economic predictions? Yes, no. You can put four big names of economics in here. Lampman, who was very good at um, expectations. Keynes. Um, Friedman. Hayek. So Lampman, not really so much in terms of following, but he is good on economic expectations. The problem we've got is that the entire economic conversation is down here in the time does not matter box. And people are either Keynesians or Friedmanites, broadly. That is where the current contemporary consensus of mainstream economics is. But people like me are up here with Hayek and Mises and Horwitz and Selgin, <coughs> Selgin um, and Dowd and um, Huerta de Soto, and I could just keep reading them off, but the Austrian school economists here. The great battle which Friedman successfully won was the idea that economic decision-making should be decentralised. The next big intellectual battle that must be won if we're going to get out of this mess and stop just debauching currency, currency in order to get out of problems which were caused by debauching currency, we have to win that argument. What is maddening about this is if you go back and read what Hayek said in the 1930s, even just read the preface to Monetary Theory of the Trade Cycle in the 30s, he had the same rant, rant against mainstream economists then that I have now, which is that having ignored the effects of money on the structure of the economy, they're now using money to try and get us out of the problems they created. So, sorry, that's a very long answer, but you ask why are they, why are they stuck in the same rut? It's because they're on this road, they need to get up onto that road. So, I'll try and give a short answer. Where, where is this intellectual battle going to be won? Is it going to be won at, at the ballot box, or is it going to be won at the, the academy first? Well, the, the guy I was with before I came here was, um, was talking about this, and he said the reason we don't have an income and prices policy is not because the electorate voted to get rid of it, 
It's because it was intellectually rubbish and the kind of opinion, all opinion formers came to the conclusion that the government just couldn't satisfactorily operate one without producing worse effects than it meant. So there's kind of this great big cloud of people forming opinions and shifting the terrain of practical debate. And it's in that great cloud of opinion formers where actually it will be one until the centre ground of politics moves up there and people generally realise that it actually does matter what, you, what interest rates are set to and that central planning and interest rates is no more legitimate than incomes and prices policies. And then the centre ground moves and then we've won. But it isn't going to be won actually by me standing for election in Wickham on, on this. If anything, what I demonstrate is it is possible to get elected to Parliament whilst being honest about your opinion in these matters. And I can do it because I absolutely believe that winning this argument is in everybody's best interests. I look at my father and how he would lay the way on building sites his, almost his whole life and didn't particularly, and, you know, didn't, didn't become rich by it. And actually the money he earned was being debased away all the time. If you'd, if you'd saved a penny in 1800, when you retired in 1870, say, if you lived that long, in 1870, that pound would have bought more goods because productivity would have made money more valuable. But if you'd saved the pound when I was born, it buys nothing now compared to what it did then. So the whole terrain, there's a brilliant book called um, The Ethics of Money Production by York E. Gleason. In The Ethics of Money Production, he explains how inflation totally changes everybody's exposure to investment decisions and their need to speculate. So it's going to be one in the great sphere of intellectual debate, which includes all of you. And uh, then it, politics will shift and it will become practical. So. Hi, um, you may touch briefly on the idea of like, real interest rates. Yeah. Because it seems like this is quite important to your argument. Yeah. So inflation media groups and savers, but only if they aren't earning like, a reasonably constant real interest rate. Yeah. If funds government only if the interest in government bonds isn't going up at the same rate. Yeah. If you, if, and uh, like, you could offer 100 term, 100 year old bonds if they had a, a real inflation like, proviso in them. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering what you'd say about, about that, right? The extent to which despite it being real terms rather than normal terms, we could still be applying most of these problems. Yeah, so let me just collect my thoughts. Do, do, you, you briefly touched on the point of um, the risk also to invest and so on and speculate. So let's think about the origin of interest rates. Suppose you and I were out there somewhere and you knew me a bit and you knew I was a reasonably safe bet. And I said, can I borrow £100 for a year, please? We'd probably have a negotiation process about uh, what, how much you wanted to charge me for, for, for foregoing your own consumption in order that I could increase my whatever. And we'd end up agreeing a price. And it'd probably be about £5. Because in the long term, that's typically what people's time preference results in interest rates are about five percent. But that might so that, that there's the first factor is your time preference for when you consume, and that determines your price. And then there's a whole range of factors like like the risk of me not repaying or increase the rate for them or, or whatever. So interest rates, the origin of interest rates in the free market is related to the supply and demand for loanable funds and people's time preferences for consumption. So if you had a free market in money, the interest rate would find its own level. The problem is, we all know that, I mean, sort of, some people in this room won't be able to remember when interest rates used to go up, I suspect. 
But, I don't mean, but you know, the death is, it just has been a long time. But when, when the central bank lowers the interest rate, everybody knows that their savings rates are about to go down. And, and everybody knows that when interest, central banks put interest rates up, their mortgage rates will increase. And so we know, although the mechanism, there's a loose joint in the mechanism, we know that what the central bank's banks are doing is that they're deliberately raising and lowering the height of the entire interest rate market in order to try and centrally plan the economy. What they're not doing is saying, oh, let's just be laissez-faire and just allow the supply and demand for local funds to set the interest rate according to people's time preferences. They're deliberately shifting the whole market. Now, to read, I mean, a good book to really get into the origin of interest rates is like something like Mises' Theory of Money and Credit, or if you want something more modern, Garrison's Time and Money, The Macroeconomics of Capital Structure is a very, very good book on this. But to try and keep it just, I don't know how many people are studying economics in the room, because you bet you'll be wider, more widely read than that, but to keep it really, really simple, interest rates are an important price which coordinates the economy through time. It's obvious that interest rate is about people's time. <coughs> but unlike all the other prices in the economy, which generally speaking, are, are, at least within bounds, even in infrastructure, within bounds are about to be determined by supply and demand, it, when it comes to interest rates, the central banks deliberately manipulate the market and fix it. Now, if we had price planning in any other commodity, we would expect to get all sorts of chaos. If we had price planning in bread, we'd expect shortages in gluts, and we'd expect a narrow range of poor quality bread and that. And then we're, oddly, we are then surprised that we have chaos in the credit markets when the credit markets are centrally planned. It's like the, the truth is hiding in plain sight before us. If you centrally plan prices, you get chaos. Have I answered your question adequately? Um, so I think you've sort of missed it in a way. Is that I agree like you will be better off if you had a, like a market clearing interest rates. Yeah. So matching some, like savers and local tenders. Sorry, savers and people who want to borrow money. Um, but it seems to me, no matter what your interest rate is, as long as it's positive, you're still in some way uh, ameliorating the negative effects of taking money away from savers and so on. Oh, I see. So you're saying, suppose that price inflation was 3%. And interest rates on savings were five percent. Right, yeah, there's yeah. no problem. Yeah, the the issue is that if you let the capitalist economy work, this is a very handy device. I mean, it's, they've got two iPhones here. Either one would do. But mo things like mobile phones and computers, even cars, are great examples of how productivity increases lower prices. So if you let the capitalist system just work people produce more, better stuff cheaper. That's the amazing magical truth of the capitalist system, and it's what happened in the 19th century. So actually, a gentle secular... A gentle, a gentle secular price deflation would be normal in a fully free market system. You'd expect some price instability and little booms and bubbles, busts and bubbles and this and that as people got excited about new technology or whatever, but you'd expect a gentle, secular price deflation. And it's the one thing that mainstream economists can't bear is the idea of a secular productivity-based price deflation. And so they end up insisting on having 2% a year price inflation. But here's the problem. Because they look at a basket of prices and say that is inflation, they end up missing things like the prices of houses going shooting away. 
And so actually, it's, it's, the structure of relative prices is ch changed over that last 13 years. Because house prices, it's like having a um, push, you, you wrap a book and you get bubbles underneath it. And you push the bubble down, it just pops up somewhere else, doesn't it? So they've, they've allowed the money supply to triple. And the structure of relative prices changed. So when you look at interest rates, you, you have to look at interest rates and the quantity of money in the context of the structure of relative prices and what would happen to those prices if you didn't have chronically inflationary money. Now, you know, Prices and Production by Hayek from the 30s is a very good book on this because that talks about just this issue of interest rates and the structure of prices. Um, Human Action by Mises, but I would go first to Prices and Production by Hayek. So when you look at all this stuff, would it matter? Well, the problem is, yes, because even if you're saying, well, savers get 5% and inflation is 2.5%, the problem is still that these are coarse aggregates which neglect the structure of prices. And so you're still getting structural damage through chronic inflation. It's almost, it's very, it's too hard to give a three sentence answer. <laughs> the, the, yeah. Part of the point here, of course, is to stimulate conversation. Because I'm not an economist, but I can point you to the economists to read on these subjects. You, want, and you, you then you. Sure. Uh, we've seen uh, throughout the years how what you call the moral machinery of the economy has made uh, bubbles of whether it be housing prices, um, I don't know, commodities, in stocks now, stocks, yeah. yeah, everything, and specifically in the derivatives market, make it much more complex and much more uh, volatile or unstable. Yeah, and that has led to quantitative easing. Yeah, and I think that quantitative easing has actually just been an excuse to just keep this going forward. But would you mean what would be a better approach than quantitative easing or a better machinery to solve these bubbles or problems? Well. The trouble is the answer to how to solve this problem is the one that nobody wants, which is to have a proper correction, to stop artificially lowering interest rates and to allow unprofitable projects to go bust and for capital to be reallocated to those who can best use it. But that is not the answer people want, because although that will sound, might sound fine in the abstract, when we now talk about having a bust, we're talking about a house price bust, and a lot of heavily indebted middle-class families who probably vote Conservative suddenly finding their house is worth half as much, but they're paying a lot more on their uh, mortgage in negative equity. So the politics of it are profound. Um, how do you fix it? The problem is with, in relation to QE and derivatives is there's quite a lot in there. Just on derivatives, if you said to banks, as they did in the United States, you will make bad loans. The Community Reinvestment Act basically said to them in the US, you will make bad loans. Well, then what are they going to do? They're going to sit there thinking, oh, we'll tell you what, we'll have these bad loans in our books, or will we come up with some way of monetizing them and selling them? And, of course, they did. And so you get this huge proliferation of derivative contracts, and it becomes an amazing wheeze. Under IFRS accounting, using mark-to-market modeling, or indeed mark-to-model, you can end up securitizing all these loans and taking all the cash flows, you've come across this, take all the cash flows as profit to earn. And it's ended up with banks massively overstating both their profits and capital. And that would blow up as well. A colleague of mine's published a pamphlet called The Law of Opposites, Illusory Profits in the Financial Sector. Who's that? A guy called Gordon Kerr, who I like to um, uh, uh, refer to as a dissident banker. 
a bank had gone good. But he's he spent. <laughs> no, not all banks. But Gordon spent over 20 years producing these derivative contracts, some quite complex ones. And in this book, he sets out how poor quality accounting rules plus easy money have resulted in this explosion of derivatives. And in terms of QE, well, if you, look, if you were to look at that money supply curve, just, just you can do this yourself, just go to the Bank of England website and get N4 and just plot it. If you, if you plotted it from 97, you'd see it did that, and then... And what QE is doing is it's, it's got two... It's being used for two purposes. One is to stop the money supply collapsing and producing a deflation in demand that would be harmful. And the other, which Hayek would have supported that. Hayek, he would have said, I think, don't we, well, I wouldn't have started from here, but since we are here, using QE to try to avoid a calamitous uh, collapse in the quantity of money would have been okay. But then they're trying to use QE to stimulate demand. And... Um, and also to manipulate expectations. So people see the stock market going up and think, oh, great, happy days, and start spending. And that, this is Mark Carney's actual plan. I mean, it's great to see you smiling. Because this is Mark Carney's actual plan. If you re read his speech in, uh, at Bloomberg in New York, he was pretty much open. If you couple that with what George Osborne said in the last budget, it's clear that Mark Carney intends to use inflationary monetary policy to manipulate both GDP and price inflation expectations in order to produce an actual recovery. And the really, I shouldn't use the word criminal, but the really scandalous <laughs> the really scandalous thing about this is that if you look at that Bloomberg speech uh, from Carney, he knows about the Austrian arguments about the structure of the economy, and he knows that using inflationary monetary policy produces misallocations and distortions which cannot last. But because of the politics of nobody being prepared to actually say, do you know what, Ultimately, this is going to work its way out, we should, and the sooner, we, the sooner we get on with it, the better. Um, he's quite happy to heroically come forth and use monetary activism. So, sorry, um, sir, I think it was you in the yeah. second row. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot for the talk. Um, so, in the first place, I have a comment, which is uh, I'm, I'm, from, I'm from Nuffield, which is Mark Kleine's alma mater, but uh, I'm, not a, I'm, a, I'm a sociologist. Um, and to go back to uh, Alex's question about uh, how we might move the debate on and perhaps expand the, the, the number of individuals who are privy to the debate. A lot of the, um, the main problems with friends of mine at Nuffield have, seem to have with Austrian economists is their uh, epistemological uh, uh, aversion to uh, empirical inquiry. Yeah. I the, sort of, the assumption that we can't look at the economy and we can't work things out empirically, yeah. or which they find very offensive. And sort of, I think they have a point there. I mean, does it, you have to make a distinction between claiming that we can uh, get gain insights from you know, correlating you know, the GDP with various other things and performing these, you know, uh, putatively, putatively testing complex macroeconomic models. And on the other hand, saying Let's look at see how let's see how much money supply has increased, and let's yeah, see what yeah. kind of effect this has had. Because you can do empirical inquiry that isn't uh, predicated upon you know, dubious macroeconomic models, I'd say. Yeah. So that's that'll be a, my comment. <coughs> the question is, uh, one objection you get uh, often when you start to warn people of the dangers of ever greater debt is, well, in the 19th century, Britain had a debt to GDP ratio of 250. 
say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so can I just say something about the epistemology thing? There's been a journey, in, in, in a, particularly in Austrian economics, and, and there's people... It's really interesting that Mises, Hayek, and Karl Popper were friends. Because Mises was part of the caricature approach to epistemology, which your friends have... Because uh, 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 Mises just said, don't do any of that stuff. I've worked it through I, I, uh, logically, and therefore I'm apodictically correct. And it's just... The hubris is intense, but... Hayek didn't do that. Hayek was interested in the numbers. And, yeah? and then if you look at somebody like Roger Koppel, who is um, very Austrian-inspired, he wrote a brilliant book called um, Big Players and the Economic Theory of Expectations, in the back of which is a, a, an appendix on the emerging new consensus in economics. And the reason I mention the name Popper is because Popper's theory about science was all about falsifiability. So I, to me, the appropriate way to proceed in economics is to use that sort of mathematical set of techniques where you, you, you work in the old Austrian school way to come up with your theoretical ideas about how things ought to work in the real economy, and then you try and falsify it with the data. And that would be the way that Koppel works. Try, try and falsify your <coughs> theories with the data, but don't expect to look at coarse aggregates and stick coarse aggregates into a model and say, oh, well, because we've increased the money supply this much, that basket of goods will increase that much and employment will decrease by... Because these coarse aggregates don't work against each other. I can't help myself, you've got my brain going now. This old idea of macroeconomics and microeconomics seems to me to stem from the era when people discovered quantum mechanics versus Newtonian and Einsteinian stuff. The idea, which is true in the real world, that there are quite different sets of rules depending what scale you look at. But when it comes to the economy, there's only actually microeconomics. And then, yeah, right, so macroeconomics is what happens when you look at microeconomics and just try and aggregate it away to make the, the maths work, and it's wrong. So, now we've done all that, I've got your... Oh, debt, right, debt, 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 debt. It's a very good point. Um, one of the problems, though, we've got with debt now is how are we going to pay it back, given the demographics we have? Because when you look at debt in isolation... Um, yes, previously it has been higher, but you might say, but yeah, they didn't have the structural misallocations we have now, nor the demographics. So, if you were to look, um, you know the old population trees you see? I've never seen this done. If I had the money, I'd pay some economists to do it. But if you were to... That definitely needs to go. If you were to draw the old population tree thing, whatever... Back, in, back when our debt was at the sort of heights that people tend to refer to, the population graph probably looked like that. Whereas now, not only does it come up much higher, it, it, it looks much more like this. Um, what are you drawing? Sorry? What are you drawing? The de demographics. So this is age. That way is age. And, and that way is uh, population numbers. Male and female. Male. Female, and I'm guessing, right? I'm just doing a sketch, but in terms of when things were different, back, back in the you know, older days, we would have had this lower chart. People died younger, and it was a much more pyramidal shape. And if you asked who's retired and who's, who's working and who's not, you'd find that people only retired for a couple of years, say at the beginning of the welfare state, and kids went, I'm not advocating this again for the benefit of the tape, I'm not advocating it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a fact that, you know, my stepfather, for example, went to work when he was 14. 
But if you were to, so if you, but, but most people were working, and the proportion of people of working age not, not in work was low. But if you were to go fast forward to today, you, know, you had this great, the vast majority of the population are supporting themselves. But fast forward to today, people are getting, going to university, maybe doing a doctorate or whatever. They've got long retirements. They've got, we've got significant numbers out of work. And I think there is a question to be asked about, given our social system, how it's set up, and the rate at which we're accruing obligations to one another, whether just looking at the debt-to-GDP ratio on its own has any meaning in the context of these demographics in our social system. Uh, very different question this time. Um, it's like, last of all, What's your portfolio? What are you invested in? I'm invested in, I own my own house outright. We might have to turn this bit on. <laughs> <laughs> I own my own house outright because I don't want to be exposed to the banks or interest rates or whatever. So I own my own house outright. It's not a particularly huge one, but I own it and I haven't got to worry about that. Um, and I've got some cash because you've got to have some cash because of things like uncertainty and my wife wanted to do stuff to the house and whatever else. But beyond that, you know, about half in gold and the rest in stocks, whatever. But how does all this work out? What should have emerged from all of this is this idea that this argument isn't going to be run in the one in the short term and at the ballot box. The public are not suddenly going to say, I tell you what, actually, you know what, shave 20% off of health, welfare and education and let's have a balanced budget tomorrow. It won't happen and no politician's practically going to offer it in the next manifesto. Right? So if you pick up Detlev Schlichter's book, Paper Money Collapse, Detlev argues from his sort of perspective that it is inevitable for him... For him, it is inevitable that paper money always collapses. And it will end up collapsing in hyperinflation, in his view. Now, if you look at the bond market right now, it, it is in a bubble. I mean, I don't think anybody would seriously argue that the central banks have not gone out of their way to lower yields by raising prices of bonds by creating a market for them through QE. And all bubbles burst, right? So sooner or later, the bond market bubble will burst. This is a mechanism. When the bond market bubble bursts, interest rates go shooting up and create an economic catastrophe in the short term. Now, if a government can't bear that, this would be the sort of argument debt level would advance. If the government can't bear that, which seems likely that it can't, it's bound to end up just printing money as a short-term measure. Now, the problem with this is, once you get into, not only have we had a lot of QE, but we're doing a lot more, if you get to the point that you undermine people's faith in paper money, then you do then get hyperinflation. So in the United States, universities in the United States have already started moving out of US treasuries because they don't think they'll be repaid. It was, I think, front page news on the, on the Financial Times last week or the week before, but I remember reading it and keeping it. So that this flight away from treasuries has begun in the United States. It's a question of whether it avalanches and goes further. But if you're of this cast of mind, that the only way out of this is a, a hideous monetary event, whether it's to do with a default and the banks go down, or whether it's a hyperinflation because people lose faith in paper money, and when these events happen. Either way, if you've got anything, it's a good idea to have some gold. Because unless they, unless they seize it, gold is always gold. It's not an asset, it doesn't have a return. It just basically, in the very long term, gold has always been money. But am I a gold bug? I'm not, actually. I'd much rather own productive assets that gave me a return. But I think in the current circumstances of, of the current political economy that we face, I reckon it's a good idea to have about half what you have in gold. 
And the fact that gold's just had a little drop, to me, is neither here nor there, because the big structural problems haven't been resolved, the bond market's still in a bubble, and now the bubble's going into equities. So to me, this is a good time to buy some more gold, which reminds me I must shift my pension into a self-invested pension on gold. <laughs> <laughs> that, so, sorry, um, I'm going to... Oh, so I did have a question and you sort of answered it, and then I asked it, I was yeah. going to say, middle class, so I'm not going to vote for the the working class, I'm going to vote for low security, and the Bank of England won't vote against itself. <laughs> so the politics are intractable. Um, the only event, the only outcome is a monetary so, um, um, yeah, that's, I think most people here sitting here are going to be sort of um, unconcerned by that. It's not going to be a bad thing. So Lincoln believed that, I can't remember the quote, but Lincoln believed if you showed the public the truth, they'd, they'd, they'd go with it, they had the sense. And I think a lot of great, I don't want this to sound uh, arrogant, but a lot of great politicians believe that you can tell the public the truth. And if you just get told them the truth, that they assess it for themselves and common sense comes to the right conclusion. What I'm trying to do, if I'm trying to do anything in politics now, it's not become a minister, because what is the point if we get... If I'm right about all this stuff, there's no point for me becoming a minister. So what I'm trying to do is to advocate this set of ideas as best I can and see if people think there's any truth in it. I think it's basically true. I'm not saying I've got all the answers. But if we can end up with a load of people saying the reason we're in this intractable, long-term depression is because every conceivable obstacle has been erected to prevent a correction, so of course it hasn't corrected. And by the way, most of those obstacles to correction are monetary, so if we then get either default or hyperinflation, people are starting to think, hang on, this has happened because of central planning of credit markets. If that is the terrain of debate, then the direction of travel is towards liberty. If the terrain of debate is that people are too greedy and markets have been too free, and actually what we need is more statesmanship and, and more official planning in the economy, da -de -da -de -da, then it goes in a very different and unhealthy direction. But I'd just point out, Ludwig von Mises, when he wrote around the time of the Great Depression, Mises forecast a monetary catastrophe in the Weimar Republic and the rise of political radicalism. And as an as a, as a Austro-Hungarian Jew, then had to flee the Nazis first to Switzerland and then to... America. And it is very, very serious stuff, of course. I told you there was going to be a lower point, didn't I? <laughs> but yeah, it, could, it really all could go horribly bloody wrong. Look at the European Union. They've managed to trample all across, all, all over democracy, just in time to raise economic nationalism, not to get rid of economic nationalism like they claim. They've raised economic nationalism to the continental scale, and they've done it just in time for a currency collapse. Big round of applause for the European Union. Who knows where it goes? But I mean, so to, to be, come back to this, you know, about the intractability of the politics. I think the thing to do is to be really honest and say, this is what I think is going on in the world. If you keep me in Parliament, I'll keep providing this kind of analysis and see where it goes. I can't remember. Uh, you haven't had a go, and neither of you, three of you, haven't had a go. Okay, thanks, Steve. Um, one of the things that I find interesting about hearing people talk about macroeconomics, uh, to the extent that macroeconomics exists, contrary to what yeah, well, yes, well, it does exist. It is, yeah, it does exist. Whether it should is another thing. Yeah. Is that the people who are broadly Keynesian or Friedmanite uh, just discount Austrianism altogether? Even those who are familiar with the principles of it will just say no, they're wrong, mm. and so they won't engage. 
And the Austrians tend not to engage with the insights that come from the other side. It's a pity. And I think that whenever you come to hear a speech like this, it's, it's, it, it doesn't advance things as much as it could because you only ever hear one side at a time. I, I'd, love to, yeah. I'd love to find a Keynesian who understood the limitations of his own models or an Austrian who was able to engage. Now, I know this is a, not a format for a debate. You know, yeah. We haven't got someone up against you. But, I, but I, I wonder, I mean, just a couple of things you said. For instance, you talked about um, Carney's plan. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe um, the catastrophe of what you call the correction is so bad that if we can sort of manage the, the prolonging of the uh, state of disease for another few decades yeah. until we're richer or smarter or something like that yep. and withdraw from it gradually, that might be better. And I think one of the things about our observation of macroeconomic major events is that sometimes when there's a crash, the, the market correction is not quite as quick as it might appear in the imagination of market optimists. Now I'm a market optimist and I think you know sometimes when people talk about the cash machine stopping dispensing notes and things like that, uh, you know, maybe that wouldn't have happened, maybe it would have happened for a short time and it would have been better and, and you know, cut, the, cut the disease out fast and get on with it. But I'm not sure about that and I think that some of the Austrians are you know, a bit too confident in their own imagination about what, what will happen and I, and I think you know, one of the things um, that Carney knows is that if, or, or, or thinks, I think with, with some, some reason, is that if we do have a collapse um, because monetary policy is tightened up, uh, it, it might only need to be tightened up a little bit for a quite a big collapse. I and mean, I think that might be what has happened in, 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 in the present situation, perhaps the, a little bit of tightening after a lot of loosening. Mm. Um, uh, that could cause a situation where you've got people, you know, who have savings that can't get any interest of bank, and you've got people who would like to borrow but are not creditworthy, and people who are frightened to spend. You know, I think that the, some of these Keynesian ideas yeah. are actually empirically um, well attested. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think the best economist I know personally who, who does trouble himself to survey the whole spectrum is Dr. Anthony Evans, who is at um, ESCP Europe. Because he wants to be part of the mainstream debate, but he's Austrian educated from George Mason, and he does bother with insights from all sides. Personally, of course, I'm not an economist, I'm an engineer. And I'm not a scientist, I'm not a mechanic, I'm an engineer. So I like filling my head with good ideas and then trying to be practical about them. So this temptation to manage ourselves out of a, a recovery, well, first thing, of course it's tempting because the correction might be too awful, and you're probably right that Austrians tend to be too optimistic. Um, the, but the other point about uh, managing our way out is that is what is being tried. You know, Mark Carney is being hired to attempt to manage our way out using fiscal responsibility and monetary activism. You know, I'm in the business in the short term of absolutely losing these arguments. The argument which has been won is that if you fiddle about with monetary policy by using quantitative easing in new and innovative ways... And, and, and keeping interest rates low, that somehow <coughs> the wise men at the Bank of England will be able to solve the problems that they created. But that takes me back to, to Hayek, because if you look at what Hayek said in Monetary Theory and the, the Trade Cycle and that preface, he was raging against these ideas then in the 30s. If you look at how he finished his book, The Pure Theory of Capital, it's full of the most wonderful passion. It's a passion Mises shows all the time. 
But I think Hayek was another step removed from the horror of the times when he grew, you know, when he grew up. Um, we'll cope with it better or whatever. But in the, in the, at the end of the pure theory of capital, Hayek has a tremendous rant against the poor, poor quality thought of contemporary economics. I think he wrote it in the 70s. We are going to live through finding out whether this paradigm of monetary activism can, can give a recovery. I think the answer is going to be no. But are they going to try? Yes, they are. Are some Austrians too optimistic? Yes. But I think the only thing to do is to keep sieving these arguments. <coughs> what does it do to the structure of prices to inject new money? And is it sustainable? And how does that produce a real argument? But yeah, I'm in the business of losing the argument. So. I just put a disclaimer that we have um, colleagues who work on the same floor in House of Commons. Oh, do we? Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, um, you said about the intractability of the British Yes, I absolutely do. I think you're right. I think that the Blue Labour movement, which has been in the, on the BBC website actually yesterday, I think Blue Labour is, is going in that direction. One of the problems we have basically is the Conservative movement, the broad family of Conservatives, is coming up with a better answer. One of my favourite quotes is from Oddfellows magazine. Oddfellows Friendly Society was the most successful, biggest friendly society before the 1911 National Insurance Act. And on the eve of the National Insurance Act, there's a quote from the magazine which goes something like this. Working people are awakening to the fact that this is an attempt to take from them the governance, the great voluntary institutions which they've built up for themselves, and to hand them over to the paid servants of the governing class. This is not liberty, this is not the development of self-government, but a new form of autocracy and tyranny, not the less, but more dangerous because of its benevolent intent. So as soon as I read that, I joined Oddfellow straight away. <laughs> but what I want, if I want to achieve anything, it is the reawakening of that working class spirit of defiance that says it would be better for me if me and my fellows were able to mutually provide for our welfare and health and that you, the, the governing class, didn't do it for me. But reawakening that spirit of defiance is going to be difficult, particularly as, you're right, I think, that the centre ground of debate is moving towards a more conservative spirit, quite honestly. Just at the moment when UKIP are making progress, and it's now not about the European Union, it's about general protest, they briefly describe themselves as a libertarian party, but they're not really. They're a kind of paleo-conservative party. They're offering us the... The, the 1950s back, but in the way that people dream of it. So, yeah, I do. I, I, I sort of think it's going our way, but to me, the main thing is can we win the argument as, as, as time goes on that actually government has to have a balanced budget and we have to have honest money and we have to make our way in the world by providing uh, for other people around us in, in, in industry? I'm sorry, I've forgotten, sir. Well, you studied some computer science. What are your prognostications about things like Bitcoin's a really interesting thing, because what's amazing about Bitcoin, and which has really taken by surprise monetary theorists like Selgin and Dowd, is that people are prepared to use it. Because it's, well, we know it has value, because it's mined in the sense of being cryptographically uh, complex to produce. 
But people do, are prepared to use it. I think, though, that what will happen with Bitcoin is that the, monetary, that the, the authorities will kill it, which has already started to happen. Partly because... Hmm? Has it already started to happen? Yeah, it has already started to happen. The Americans have did something a couple of weeks ago. Didn't somebody got no... Close to one exchange, didn't they? Yeah, because the problem with it is people will use it to, 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 to either launch... It happened with a private gold coinage that was created as well. The authorities killed that. I've forgotten its name. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But the, the state, the state hates anybody competing with their monopoly on certain things, like the monopoly on the use of force or the no monopoly on the production of the currency and so on. So I think, I think and particularly since Bitcoin is used to buy drugs notably, I think that states will, will, will end up shutting it down. Quite a lot of money is used to buy drugs as well. Well, indeed. <laughs> that, that, that is, yeah, yeah, um, that is a very good point indeed. Um, yeah. But I, I, think that, I think it's very interesting that it has emerged as a money. I think it could have a bright future as a good means of exchange. I've got questions about things like its divisibility and its durability. Because if you would, I don't know, they're just questions. Um, but more than that, I think ultimately, practically, the state, wherever it is, will shut it down. Because it won't be able to bear the competition. One quick last one on my own. The, um Problem politics, yeah. you said there about the state shutting down the competition. Politics seems to be the problem, the state seems to be causing the politics and the problems that it brings. Um, yeah. Can we move on from that? Or Do you know? Can yeah. you just <laughs> I'll just answer this one as carefully as possible. <laughs> I, I just enjoyed a book called uh, The Problem of Political Authority by a guy called Michael Humer, I think that's how you say it, H U E M E R. And it's a brilliant book, but his argument is basically that there is no justification for the state in common sense morality. The problem with, for me, when I read his book, the problem is that we already have got millions of people all around the world dependent on the state for their living. So when you're looking at real world choices about the state, if one were to just, if suppose you just mostly just won the argument that we should get rid of the state, and you, there was Rothbard's button to push, would you push it? Well, I wouldn't push it. The problem is we've ended up with millions of people who were misled by politicians over the course of 100 years, last, 20, last December 2011, whenever it was. 100 years, politicians have misled the public and said, trust us, the state, and we will provide for you in your old age, and we will provide your health, and we will provide your education, and leave it to us. And so they did. People like, frankly, my mum and dad have left it to the state um, to provide for them in their old age. And you can't just press the button and take away sustenance from elderly people. You can't do it. So could we ever move on? I suppose one day humanity somewhere might move on. But there are still bad people in the world. So you have to win the argument that the private provision of criminal justice is possible. And it all suddenly becomes too ridiculous for a practical politician. Could we perhaps start um, having a look at subscription to public services, like the way the uh, memorial used to be built by public subscription? You know, in Wickham, the hospital was built by public subscription and through donations, and people remember that it was the War Memorial Hospital, and it's one of the reasons people are so bloody furious that A&E was taken away. And what, but what, that is what I try and get across when I'm, when I'm in Wickham. It'd be better if we owned that hospital ourselves. Because at the moment, the state owns the hospital. It doesn't matter whether Labour or the Conservatives are in power. The state owns the hospital, and you don't get what you want. 
And it'd be much better, actually, if we owned the hospital and we got what we wanted. And if we didn't, weren't getting what we wanted, we were at least in control of the destiny of that piece of capital. The, the big problem with subscription and so on is the argument about inequality and what, what is fairness and all the rest of it. And that goes to all that rules versus nosic stuff. And bottom line is, we've got to provide for the poorest in our society. And that's been done since Elizabethan times, at least, by force of law. I, I think, I think the, 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 the most minimal practical vision for the state that I, that I can think of is the one that Hayek sets out in the Constitution of Liberty. Because the whole Rothbardian thing that no state whatsoever is it's too silly in practical politics. Um, so I would say that I'm, I'm probably with Hayek and the Constitution of Liberty. That doesn't go anything like far enough for a lot of libertarians, but I don't think anything less than that is anything like practical for, for ever. And what were those uh, defence, law and... And minimal welfare, yeah. And minimal welfare. So, safety net welfare. But, you know, the old, um, the universal credit that's being brought in, basically make sure everybody gets a minimum, and then as you earn more, the, the subsidy from the tax there comes out. I, I think in the longer term, something like that could be used for pensions as well to make sure that actually there is a safety net that nobody slips below and everybody accepts that safety net, young and old, and you might get a different figure depending whether you're in work or out of work, whatever. But actually this idea that if you've saved your pension and you're earning 50 or 60,000 pounds a year from your pension, that actually you should, get, you should not get your winter fuel allowance. I think that, that those sorts of battles can be won. But we've always got to provide for those who can't provide for ourselves, for, them, for themselves, somehow.